One of the things I love about faith-based social justice organizing is that there's lots of singing. Recently, I've heard the same song a lot. It's been sung at meetings, gatherings, at the ordinations of UU ministers, and it's often connected to migration justice. Here are the words. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. For your people are my people. Your people are mine. Your people are my people. Your divine, my divine. The song was written by Rabbi Shoshana Jedwab, and the words come from an often quoted biblical passage in the book of Ruth. Travelers and foreigners were not always treated well in the Bible, but here it's a model of love and solidarity. Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are both recently widowed. She is set to journey back across deserts to her homeland. She refuses to go alone, and the two women travel together. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God is my God. This is a line that's inspiring to people across many different traditions. For me, there's a lot of resonance with Unitarian Universalism. I think of our conviction that there's unearned worth in every person and that we're all connected. From our Universalist heritage that the great circle of love excludes no one. The refrain reminds me that people long before me across place and time have struggled with this question of how to be in solidarity with the traveler, how to be each other's people. How can we be each other's people? That's the hard question, I think, at the center of our immigration justice work. As some of you may know, congregations around the country, including First Parish, are engaged in what's broadly called sanctuary work. If you're an undocumented person, when immigration police knocks at your door, there's not so many options. One of them is to take refuge in a house of worship over the short or long term, because people of faith believe there's a responsibility to love and shelter the stranger, because an enforcement officer is unlikely to breach that space. Congregations collaborating on sanctuary here in, in Cambridge are learning how we can be each other's people. For those of us with papers and privilege, we're learning to leave our abstract opinions at the door, really listen and trust the leadership of those most personally affected. There's been a handful of individuals in sanctuary in Massachusetts since 2016. But even if congregations had the resources and space to house every person at risk, physical sanctuary is still not the choice for everyone. So we're trying to build upon the spirit of this work with a broader network of support for people and families in immigration detention. We are all heartbroken by the stories from the border. But in a certain sense, the border is also right here in Massachusetts. There are over 1,000 people held every year in the immigration ward in Suffolk County House of Corrections. We're trying to be more consistent about calling this place what it actually is, immigration jail. The problem is more severe since 2016, but the separation of immigrant families due to incarceration is not a new problem. The people caged in that anonymous brick building next to the highway are all sorts. Parents with lapsed visas who've lived in the US for decades, young men 19 or 20 years old who were arrested over the summer, alone crossing the Texas border seeking asylum from gang violence in Central America. These folks on the inside are organizing and supporting each other, and those of us on the outside, the Boston Immigration Justice Accompaniment Network, are trying to walk the journey with detainees and their families, raising money for bond or lawyers, giving a ride from the ICE office, lending a supportive presence in a courtroom, 
writing letter letters to judges, giving someone a place to stay for a couple weeks once they get out. Last week, there was some good news in the, in the accompaniment network. In quick succession, nine people in the network, the network has been supporting were granted bond, meaning that they can leave the prison and rejoin their families as soon as the fee is paid. Most bond money eventually gets returned, but the costs are steep, and the network doesn't yet have enough money to fundraise to release all nine. Only two have been covered so far. I hope you'll join me after the service at our table during coffee hour in donating to the Accompaniment Network's bond fund to get these neighbors free. There's a principle I learned from the clergy who lead this work. We ask ourselves, what would I do to support a family member, close friend, or neighbor in this situation? Certainly raising money or taking a morning to sit in a courtroom is not too much for family. And we believe it doesn't matter if we're not literal family members or neighbors because we are each other's people across borders of nationality, language, race, or documentation status. Sometimes it's easy to feel this sense of family, this sense of expanding love. Over the summer, I had some free time and helped by answering the network's hotline phone. For a few days at a time, I carried around a cheap cell phone and took calls from immigration jail. Volunteers talk to the detainees and record information on Google Documents to pass along to other volunteers. Since it's so expensive to receive calls from prison, we also transfer incoming calls to family members to help defray some of the cost. It's about one, week, one call a week per person. And in July, I talked to a man trying to make a phone call to his wife. There was no answer, and he called again later in the evening. He apologized. I'm sorry for calling again. It's just that when my wife is pregnant, I think the baby is coming today. He was so accustomed to a cruel system, he assumed I might stick to our one call a week guideline. You can make as many calls as you want on the day your child is born, I said. I dialed the number and listened with relief as the call connected to a happy voice on the other end. We shouldn't live in a place where a dad misses the birth of his son because he's locked up for crossing a border. You can't undo that pain. But for a moment, at least, there was some joy. There's also this web of support around this man and his family. A volunteer who's become close to his wife visited in the hospital and sat with her and the kids in the courtroom a few weeks later. The family is gracious about requesting and receiving support and attends gatherings of the network. The baby has a sister who's just turned four. She's chatty and effortlessly bilingual, and she likes to ask new people she meets, is today your birthday? The baby boy is two months old now. He's that kind of newborn with a tiny face that looks like a grandfather. It's tempting to think that people so beautiful, who seem so perfect, don't deserve this. But there's pieces of these stories that are also harder to take. Family estrangements, a scattered criminal record, a messy and confusing backstory, and the thread of trauma and domestic violence runs through almost every case. But Unitarian Universalism teaches me, in a way I didn't learn from my education or politics or being a nice liberal, to extend compassion regardless. It's not about who's a model or who has a beautiful baby or making up an abstract and distant glorified image of who we think people are. If we really are each other's people, solidarity isn't earned. Certain migrants are not more worthy, more deserving of freedom. And we're called to help people in a mutual, human kind of way where we get close enough to the details to notice the messy and painful complexities and imperfections. For your people are my people. 
our people. Our people who traveled and crossed a border, our people journeying across their ancestral stolen land, worthy of love and freedom. Our people who have lived a lifetime in the United States, our people who have just arrived, worthy of love and freedom. Our people with a spotless record, and our people who have made mistakes, worthy of love and freedom. Let's help each other get free. Amen. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Where you lie. Where you lie, I will lie, beloved. Where you lie, I will lie. Where you lie, I will lie, beloved. Where you lie, I will lie. And your people, and your people are my people. Your people are mine. Your people are my people. Your divine, your divine, my divine. Your people are my people. Your people are my people. Your people are mine. Your people are my people. Your divine, your divine, my divine. Thank you for that reflection. Thank you for those images so immediate, so urgent, so pressing, um, and too familiar, I think, in our world today. I wonder if we grow a little numb to the constant onslaught of hearing about people in immigration jail. I wonder if we get numb to the injustice. I was compelled in thinking about the ways in which we might get numb to all of this, to actually look back uh, to the words of a great scholar who occupied these pews, James Luther Adams. And I found this. It was delivered at the inaugural convo convocation of the Boston Theological Institute in 1968. These words from James Luther Adams. We live in a time when almost everyone is acutely conscious of the struggle for power that is going on in the international theater and also on the home front. Indeed, over wide stretches of the earth, revolutionary forces are at work in various ways. Some places, to be sure, remain in a happy state of innocence, but this happiness may soon pass. Our situation today is fraught with danger, 
readily evident in the appearance of the confrontation politics that rejects normal political methods. One of our sages, a seasoned commentator on the political scene, noting the importunate demands for, for reform, questions whether popular democracy as we know and cherish it is capable of bringing up about the changes required in a technological age. There are many paradoxes in the situation. Fifty years ago, fifty years ago, yet somehow we're still asking these same questions, still facing these same challenges, and frankly I'm not sure that democracy as we know it or have known it will or can survive. But I'm no politician. I'm here for your hearts. And as I see it, our dilemma is that it's not so much that we can't move beyond the news cycle, it's not so much that we can't move beyond these same conflicts that come up. If you look 50 years before James Luther Adams, it was the same thing. 50 years before that, 100 years before that. We cannot move beyond our basic nature to be human, which is seeking movement at all times. And if you look deeply embedded in the conflicts that we are facing right now, the conflicts from 50 years ago, the conflicts from 100 years ago, so often it goes back to this question of how we're able to move, not just mobility, but move emotionally, move spiritually, to move in our hearts. We are creatures of movement. We are creatures of incredibly powerful generative energy. This earth is bursting with a creative and generative force that's embedded in each and every one of us. And that force cannot be contained. If it sees a loved one, it runs to that loved one. If it hears music that is most desirable to it, it wants to sing along. If it knows that its child is being born, it wants to call over and over and over again to know that that child has safely arrived in this world. We are creatures of movement and generative energy. And what I think our great conflict is, time and again, is that we're afraid sometimes of just being human. We're afraid of this power, we're afraid of this energy, that we're afraid of this ability to create life that we all hold, and we're also afraid because we know that it is so fragile. When we see someone who is nearing the end of this arc, we see how tender, how fragile, how thin the thread is that holds us here as opposed to being there in the unknown. But we have comfort. We have comfort. We have comfort 
in places and communities like this, where we can share our pain, share the struggle, share the grief, share the challenge of the barriers that stand in our way, the barriers that may stand in others' ways, those forces keeping us from the motion of natural human being. It should be a great comfort to each and every one of you that we have each other to seek out. We have each other to migrate through our lives, our times, our journeys together. I want to share one last thing with you. You'll notice in this service, we sang a lot of songs and we're going to sing one more with a lot of Spanish lyrics in them. And I think it's important that we do that at least <laughs> every week, honestly, because although the criminalization of immigration is not exclusive to Spanish-speaking people or countries. For instance, we have our northern border as well, and we never talk about it as the border, the border with Canada. But my family, in part, comes from there. My family also comes from Jamaica, a border of an ocean. There are migrants from all over, but to get back to why we sing in Spanish, it's because there is a targeted and specific effort to criminalize being of Latin heritage in this culture. And the more we can do to reach out, understand, learn, know, and grow, the better we can be in community. And I want to take you back to this idea of having each other to pull each other through this process of, of working against this fear of being human. That just seems to me irrational. We have our final song, which we will sing together. But let me just read one of the lyrics from it in English that I'll ask you to also embrace in your heart. Immerse me in the river of your spirit. I need to refresh this dry heart. I thirst for you. Sumérgeme en el río de tu espíritu. Necesito refrescar este seco corazón sediento de ti. I thirst for you. We thirst for each other. Let us commit to quenching that thirst in this room and in this wider world.